This talk starts with a question for you. Why did the Buddha leave home? I mean, come on. Surely somebody has some idea why he left home. Because he couldn't not leave home. Okay. Why did the Buddha leave home? <laughs> okay, so he saw the heavenly messengers, an old person, sick person, dead person, and then he saw a monk and thought, oh, maybe that's the way to deal with old age, sickness, and death. See some nodding. He wanted to find out the cause and cure of suffering. He wanted to find out the cause and cure of suffering. Any others? Okay, so the story of seeing the old person, sick person, dead person, and the monk is in the suttas, but it's not the Buddha. It's uh, a previous Buddha named Vipassi. Siddhartha Gautama uh, is not recorded as having done that. Now, the three heavenly messengers do appear in the suttas. And the Buddha is talking to someone and says, haven't you seen the three heavenly messengers? Haven't you ever seen an old person, sick person, dead person? So certainly the concept is in there, but it's not recorded in the suttas that that's what happened to him. That is the mythology that we all get. It's quite interesting to actually read the suttas and uh, find how much of what we know is mythology and how much is actually there. There's a sutta in the Athika Vaga. The Athika Vaga is book four of the Sutta Nipata. It literally means the Book of Eights. And some of the suttas in there have eight verses. That may have been the original core. There's a new, absolutely brilliant translation of the Vaga out <laughs> called The Buddha Before Buddhism, translated by Gil Fransdell. Highly recommended. He's got a great commentary for each of the suttas as well as a very good translation. I'm going to read you the beginning of number 15 from the Atikavaga, which is entitled, The Discourse on Being Violent. Violence gives birth to fear. Look at people and their quarreling. I will speak of my dismay and the way I was shaken. Seeing people thrashing about like fish in little water, and seeing them feuding with each other, I became afraid. Does any of this sound relevant to today? <laughs> the world is completely without a core. Everywhere things are changing. Gil gives a, a different literal translation in the footnote. Everywhere things are changing. All directions are in motion. Wanting a place of my own, I saw nothing not already taken. 
The Buddha was a Sakyan. The Sakyans were a warrior culture. They were vassals of the king of Kosala. They were a proud and independent people. And, well, they didn't particularly enjoy being vassals of the king of Kosala, but that was their lot. They rebelled in some sneaky ways that actually eventually caught up to them. When you think of a warrior culture, it was probably a macho culture. People were quarreling everywhere. Everybody trying to get their own way. We think of India, you don't really think of a, of a warrior culture or a macho culture so much. But that's where the Buddha grew up. Right? And he saw people quarreling. Everything was upset. I felt discontent at seeing only conflict to the very end, or only conflict everywhere I looked, as far as I could see. Then I saw an arrow here, hard to see, embedded in the heart. Pierced by this arrow, people dash in all directions. When the arrow is pulled out, they don't run, they don't sink. I would say the Buddha left home looking for peace. Right? Yeah, peace, the lack of peace is certainly dukkha, and he was looking for the end of the lack of peace. Uh, now, the sutta goes on, it's really quite beautiful in describing, you know, what you can do to find some peace. The overriding theme of the Atikavaga, these 16 suttas, we could say is not holding to fixed views or not getting entangled in views and opinions. Uh, if, if you're not entangled in views and opinions, then you don't get caught up in quarrels and disputes. And this is how the Buddha apparently found peace, because that's certainly what he's describing in the Atikavaga. There's another sutta in here. Uh, it's number 11 in the Atikavaga. And it's the discourse on quarrels and disputes. If I had to pick my top three suttas of all time, it would make the list. You probably haven't heard this sutta. It's not very well known. But I'll try and explain, you know, what it's talking about. And maybe there'll be some things in here that can be helpful for us in this time of quarrels and disputes. There's a questioner who asks, from where come quarrels, disputes, despair, and sorrow, as well as selfishness, pride, conceit, and malicious speech? From where have they come? Please answer us. 
the Buddha, from what is cherished come quarrels, disputes, despair and sorrow, as well as selfishness, pride, conceit, and malicious speech. I've also seen it translated from what is endearing. So cherished or endearing. It's important here to realize that the Buddha is not talking about cause, but necessary condition. When we speak about causes, we're, we're really doing metaphysics. The cause of something is this other thing. The Buddha wasn't a metaphysicist. He wasn't trying to explain how the world worked. He was trying to find an end to dukkha. He was looking for a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha. Now, you know about necessary conditions? A necessary condition for the lights to be on is the light switch be turned on, right? It's not a sufficient condition. You've got to have the wires coming from the power plant, and the power plant has to be pumping out electricity. Now, if you want the lights to go off, you could blow up the power plant. You could cut the wires. But if you can find a more easily manipulatable necessary condition for the lights to be on, like the light switch and turn off the lights, this is a good thing to do. So instead of trying to find out the cause of dukkha, the Buddha was looking for a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha. Sometimes when the second noble truth gets talked about, it gets talked about as Craving is the cause of dukkha. But that's not what the Pali says. The Pali says that dukkha arises dependent on craving. In other words, craving is a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha. Right? It doesn't matter what the cause of dukkha is. What matters is, can you turn off the dukkha? Or better yet, can you prevent the dukkha from arising? You can find a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha and then prevent the necessary condition from happening. The dukkha doesn't happen. One way to keep the lights from being turned on, ah, you could tape the light switch down, right? You know, tape it down really solidly so nobody can turn it on. No lights come on. If you could uh, tape down your craving so it never came on, you wouldn't have any more dukkha. A little hard to do, but at least it's a starting point. So really the questioner is asking here, when he says, from where do these things come? And the Buddha answers, quarrels and disputes arise from what is endearing. He's providing a necessary condition for quarrels and disputes, right? It's not the cause of quarrels and disputes. You might have had something that was endearing that you cherished in your life and it didn't cause any quarrels and disputes, right? But if you look around at whatever the quarrels and disputes are about, it's, yeah, it's about things that are cherished or ideas or ideals or whatever. From what is cherished come quarrels, disputes, despair, and sorrow, as well as selfishness, pride, 
conceit, and malicious speech. Quarrels and disputes are tied to selfishness. Maligning others arises with disputes. A questioner asks, where is the foundation for what is cherished in the world? What's a necessary condition for us to find things endearing? And for the greed that operates in the world, where is the basis for the hopes and aims people have for the future? Desires are the foundation for what is cherished in the world and for the greed that operates in the world. This is the basis for hopes and aims that people have for the future. You don't find something endearing unless it's desirable. You don't cherish something then it, unless it's desirable. Right? The questioner has lots of questions. What is the foundation for desire in the world? What's a necessary condition for desire? And from where have arisen judgment, anger, lies, uncertainty, and the mental qualities spoken of by the renunciate, the Buddha. Desire arises dependent on the pair this world calls, calls pleasant and unpleasant, or agreeable and disagreeable. Think about what you desire. <laughs> You're desiring the pleasant stuff, right? And you are desiring not to experience the unpleasant stuff. You want the agreeable stuff. You don't want the disagreeable stuff. Seeing the becoming and non-becoming of appearances, seeing the things of the world arising and not arising, a person creates judgments in this world. When these pairs exist, so these pairs, pleasant, unpleasant, becoming, not becoming, the states of anger, lies, and uncertainty. So do the states of anger, lies, and uncertainty. Whoever is uncertain should train in the way of knowledge. For it is from having known that the renunciate spoke of mental states. Train in the way of knowledge. We could also translate that as, go do insight practice, right? Because the insight practice is to give you insight into what's actually happening. That's usually phrased as insight into uh, what's, uh, things as they are, insight into things as they are. But as I said, I'm, I'm fond of looking at it in terms, or terms of verbs rather than nouns. So insight into what's actually happening. Train in the way of learning, of gaining knowledge into insight, into what's actually happening. Where is the foundation for what is agreeable and disagreeable? What's a necessary condition for finding things pleasant and unpleasant? What must not exist for these to not occur? perfect way of phrasing necessary condition. Tell me, where is the origin for whatever is meant by becoming and not becoming? 
Sense contact is the foundation for pleasantness and unpleasantness. Uh, if you don't get sensory input, you don't find things pleasant or unpleasant. Right? There's an absolutely fabulous painting hanging in the house a quarter mile down this way. When you look at it, you're just overcome with pleasure, right? You agree? Well, you have no idea. You've never seen that painting. I could be making the whole thing up, right? <laughs> it's only when you get the sense contact and you look at it and it produces a painting. And yeah, I was making the whole thing up. <laughs> sense contact is the foundation for pleasant and unpleasant. With the non-existence of contact, these don't occur. This is the basis for whatever is meant by becoming and not becoming. Something doesn't become unless you sense it there. Right? there there's a the necessity of actually sensing before you can really say something is become or something is not become. Where is the foundation for contact in the world? What's a necessary condition for contact? From where does grasping arise? With the non-existence of what does selfishness not occur? With the non-becoming of what does contact not occur? Contact is dependent on nama rupa. Nama we often see that translated as mind and rupa as body. Turns out that's not really such great translation. Contact is dependent on name and appearance. Nama literally means name. Nama for this is water bottle, right? Appearance is it looks like this, right? Nama is your primary mode of transportation, which I'm assuming for a lot of people is a car. Maybe for some of you it's a bicycle or a bus, right? When I say it, you get some sort of picture. You picture your car or your bicycle or a bus, right? Okay. There was no appearance of it. It was just the nama, right? And if I had something you had never seen before and I held it up, you wouldn't know it's nama, but you would say, oh, what is that? thing that just appeared, right? That's his appearance. Contact is dependent on nama rupa, name and appearance. Longing is the basis for grasping. When longing doesn't exist, selfishness doesn't occur. With the disappearance of appearances, contact doesn't occur. With the disappearance of rupa, form, body, appearances probably makes a whole lot more sense. If something doesn't appear, then you're not going to get a sense contact of it. That makes sense, right? So what have we got so far? We got quarrels and disputes. That's dukkha, right? This dukkha arises from finding things endearing, 
cherishable, right? The cherishing arises from desire, desirability. The desire arises from pleasant and unpleasant. The pleasant and unpleasant arises from contact. And contact arises from namarupa, name and appearance. This is not a causal chain. This is looking at necessary conditions. Looking at something, finding a necessary condition from it, and then looking at that thing and finding a necessary condition for that. In a sutta, I believe it's number 28 in the middle-length discourses, the Buddha's chief disciple, Sariputta, quotes the Buddha as saying, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. The teaching on dependent origination is the heart of the Buddha's teaching. All right, so what's the teaching on dependent origination? Well, if I'd started my talk by asking that question, probably would have gotten an answer something like the 12 links, right? Everybody, I'm sure, knows the 12 links of dependent origination, right? You got it? Got that in your mind? No? I see a few blank. Well, it's pretty simple. Dukkha, old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, arises dependent on birth. Pretty obvious. You don't get born. You don't experience dukkha, right? It's a necessary condition for experiencing dukkha as you get born. Being born is dependent on becoming. Becoming is dependent on clinging. Clinging is dependent on craving. Craving is dependent on vedna. Vedna is dependent on sense contact. Sense contact is dependent on senses. Senses are dependent on namarupa. Namarupa is dependent on consciousness. Consciousness is dependent on sankharas, fabrications, concoctions. Fabrications are dependent on ignorance. That's how the 12 items are linked together. This is what most people think of when they think of dependent origination. What does that mean? What's the interpretation of those 12 links? Yeah, right. There have been books written on that. Uh, there's lots of views and opinions about what that means. Uh, the Vasudhimaga, which is a commentary from about 500 AD, says that it describes three lifetimes. I don't buy that. You know why? Well, there's no evidence in the suttas that it means that. And there's evidence that the Buddha had something else in mind. Let's run through this again. Dukkha arises dependent on birth becoming clinging, craving, vedna, sense contact, senses namarupa. Does that sound familiar, like something you might have heard recently? Dukkha, instead of old age, sickness, and death, is quarrels and disputes, arises dependent on finding things cherishable. Cherish, that sound a little like clinging. Things you cling to, you, you cherish those. That's why you're clinging to it, right? Kind of similar. Uh, 
things are cherishable, endearing, because they're desirable. Desire sounds somewhat like craving. Yeah. Uh, desirable arises dependent on it is pleasant, it is not pleasant. Vedna, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, neither. That's pretty close, right? Vedna arises dependent on contact. It is pleasant, it is not pleasant, arises dependent on contact. Exactly the same word. Pasa. Right? Contact arises. Well, in some of the recensions of the links of dependent origination, the senses aren't mentioned. Right? The senses seem to be a later addition there. It arises dependent on Namarupa. It would appear that this sutta, this quarrels and disputes sutta in the fourth book of the Sutta Nipata, is a very early teaching of dependent origination. In fact, I've gone so far as to claim it's the original teaching on dependent origination. The Athikavaga appears to be very early. It appears to be the teachings the Buddha was giving before they invented Buddhism. Oh, good title for a book, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. And there's nothing in what I just read you in Sutta Nipata 4.11 that would make you think of multiple lifetimes, right? It's all about identifying a problem and figuring out what are necessary conditions in the chain that leads to that problem. And if you can manipulate one of those necessary conditions, then you can prevent the problem from arising. My teacher Ayakema said that the Four Noble Truths were dependent origination in telegram style, a summary of the key points. I guess nowadays we say the Four Noble Truths are dependent origination in Twitter style, right? The key point here being that dukkha arises dependent on craving. But as I mentioned before, I tell you don't crave, you'll probably still go crave. You've got to learn to not crave. And this is what the practice is about. One way to prevent the craving is mindfulness. Remember, sense contacts arise, and it actually turns out sense contacts are going to produce Vedana. Sense contact is a necessary and sufficient condition for Vedana. Tenth of a second later, you're going to categorize the sense contact as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Right? And now there's a gap before the onset of craving. And if you're mindful of your Vedana, second establishment of mindfulness, you can get in there and enjoy the pleasant and deal with the unpleasant without getting sucked into craving. And if the craving doesn't happen, well, that was a necessary condition for dukkha. No dukkha. Right? This mindfulness of Vedana is extremely important. It's the first opportunity you really got to get in there and deal with things. Right? You're going to get sense contacts. You're sitting in here. You're meditating away. And somebody coughs. And it messes up your meditation. Right? You left your ears turned on. You're going to get the sense contacts. You can't walk around without looking where you're going. They're going to be sense contacts. But the sense contacts are going to generate Vedana. And you do have a chance 
of dealing with the Vedna and not getting lost in craving, which, yeah, is a setup for dukkha. Now, I want to go back to this sutta. I think I made the point I really want to make so far. All right, so we could stop right now, but hey, left some time on the clock. I'm going to keep going. Because the, the rest of the sutta is really quite interesting as well. So, contact is dependent on name and appearances. Longing is the basis of grasping. When longing doesn't exist, selfishness doesn't occur. With the disappearance of appearances, the disappearances of rupa, contact doesn't occur. Now the questioner has got a slightly different line of questioning. Associated with what do appearances disappear? How do we, how do we not have appearances appear? How do pleasure and pain disappear? Tell me this. I'm motivated to know how they disappear. And now comes a rather cryptic verse. Appearances disappear when not conceiving concepts, not conceiving false concepts, not non-conceiving, and not conceiving disappearance. This is because conceiving is the basis of conceptual proliferation. Okay, that's Gill's translation, except he said conceptual differentiation. I like conceptual proliferation. On my website, I have like six different translations of this particular verse. The operative word here is sanya. If you're familiar with the five aggregates, Right, first aggregate is, oh, rupa, right? We got that one. Rupa, and then vedna, and then sanya, which we usually translate as perception, and then sankara, which I want to translate as mental activities in this context, and then vijnana, consciousness. So, by not sanyaing sanyas, not sanyaing false sanyas, not non-sanyaing, not sanyaing disappearance. Well, I probably didn't help a lot. I've seen it translated with perception. Uh, not perceiving percepts. Not perceiving abnormal percepts. Not non-perceiving. Not perceiving what has disappeared. No matter what we do with it, it's a very cryptic verse, right? But I think it, it's pointing to something. The fact that Gil translated Sanya as concept, I think is absolutely brilliant. I want to translate Sanya as conceptualization because I'm hooked on, you know, trying to do verbs rather than nouns. I think what the Buddha is pointing to here is we get lost in our concepts, right? There's... There's a sense contact and it produces Vedana. And then we've got to figure out what's going on here. We got some hints as to whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. And now we got to identify what's going on. And by conceptualizing the sense contact, or actually conceptualizing the source of the sense contact, 
then we've got a handle where we can identify what's going on and start manipulating it. That's called thinking and emoting and memory and all sorts of conceptual proliferation. Right? And so what the Buddha is saying is that appearances don't appear if you don't get to doing your usual conceptual thing. Appearances disappear by not doing ordinary conceptualization, by not doing abnormal conceptualization, by not ceasing conceptualization, and by not conceptualizing what has disappeared. Indeed, conceptualizing is the source of mental proliferation. I've studied this verse actually for years, multiple times. Find a new translation. Oh, good. I have a website that's got all of them right beside each other, you know, a web page there. I'm still puzzling around it. But I got some ideas, and maybe there's some other suttas that can help. All right? But let's finish this one first. The questioner says, you've explained what we've asked. We ask another question. Please answer. Do learned ones say highest purity of the spirit goes only this far, or do they say it is something more than this? Is this it? Is this the ultimate? This conceptualizing in a different way? Is that, is that the highest there is, or is there something further? Some learned ones say that the highest purity of spirit goes only this far. But some who claim to be expert explain it occurs at the time when there is no residue of grasping. Now that could be interpreted in multiple ways. No residue of grasping. You've overcome all tendency for craving and clinging. Maybe you've uprooted selfishness. Actually, a lot of what's in this particular sutta is a reflection of the fact that the questioner was studied in the Upanishads, the literature of the competing central religion at that time. And probably no residue of grasping means after you're dead. All right. So can you get to the highest, the ultimate on the spiritual path while you're alive? Or do you have to die to get there? So some say the highest Purity comes while you're alive, and others say it doesn't happen till you die. Knowing both of these claims are conditional, right? They're, they're not without conditions. They've been hammered out by reasoning. A sage investigates conditionality. A sage investigates dependent arising. Knowing the liberated one doesn't get into disputes. This wise one doesn't associate with becoming or not becoming. Right? It's still a little cryptic there. But basically the Buddha is saying, don't get caught up in views and opinions. You don't know whether the highest thing on the spiritual path occurs before you die or after you die. But, you know, investigate the fact that those ideas are conditionally arisen. The investigation of conditionality 
is going to pay off big time. All right. So that cryptic verse about, you know, not conceiving normally or abnormally or non-conceiving or not conceiving what's there, what's that about? How would you go about practicing that? Well, there's a sutta that gives some instructions. This comes from the Udana. It's in the first book, and it's the tenth sutta. It's the Bahia Sutta. Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove on a Dependicus Park. Now at that time, Bahia of the Bark Cloth was living at Supaparaka by the seashore. Bahia of the Bark Cloth was recognized as a holy man, and he had no trouble obtaining alms food and lodgings. Now at one point, while he was deep in seclusion, this reflection arose in the mind of Bahia of the Bark Cloth. Am I one of those in this world who are arahants, or at least have entered on the path to arahantship? Then a deva, who was a former blood relation of Bahia of the Bark Cloth, understood that reflection in his mind. Being compassionate and wishing to benefit him, he approached Bahia and said, Bahia, you are neither an arahant, nor have you entered on the path to arahantship. You do not follow a practice whereby you could become an arahant or enter on the ara, a path to arahantship. Buddy, you're not an arahant and you have no clue how to become one. <laughs> then in this world, including the devas, who are arahants or have entered on the path to arahantship? There is by he in a far country a town called Savati. There the blessed one now lives who is the arahant, the fully awakened one. That blessed one Bahia is indeed an arhat and he teaches Dhamma for the realization of arhatship. Then Bahia the bark cloth, profoundly stirred by the words of that deva, then and there departed from Supaparaka, stopping for only one night everywhere along the way. All right, so he was in a hurry. You know, he'd go all day and then he would stop overnight and then the next day he didn't hang out. He got up and he went another and he stopped someplace else. Sometimes this gets mistranslated. He did it in a day and a night. That's a mistranslation. Bahia went to Savati, where the Blessed One was staying. At that time, a number of bhikkhus were walking up and down in the open air. So he arrives at Jeta's Grove on a Tepindika's Park, and he sees a bunch of monks doing walking meditation. Then Bahia of the Bark Cloth approached those bhikkhus and said, Where, Reverend Sirs, is the Blessed One living, the Arhat, the fully awakened one? We wish to see him. The Blessed One by he has gone for alms food among the houses. He's gone into town to get something to eat. Then by he hurriedly left Jeta's grove, entering Savati, he saw the Lord walking for alms food. Pleasing, lovely to see with calm senses and tranquil mind, attained to perfect poise and calm, controlled a perfected one watchful with restrained senses. The picture we get of the Buddha is that if you encountered him, he had, he had charisma that just shone without him doing anything. And he's just walking around with his begging bowl and you're like, whoa, look at this guy. Right? So Bahia recognized the Buddha right away. On seeing the Blessed One, he approached, fell down with his head at the Lord's feet 
and said, teach me Dhamma, O Blessed One, teach me Dhamma, so that it will be good for my good and happiness for a long time. Upon being spoken to thus, the Blessed One said to Bahia of the bark cloth, it is an unsuitable time, Bahia. We have entered among the houses for alms food. If a spiritual teacher got his food by going on alms round, it was really inappropriate to go up and ask for spiritual teachings while the teacher was on alms round. Doing so would delay the teacher, and when the teacher finished with the teaching, might not be any food left. You know, people weren't hanging out ready to give to mendicants all day long. You know, they fixed the meal, they fixed some extra, and it was available. And so, you know, you go on alms round, you get your food. And so, Bahia coming up and interrupting the Buddha's alms round is, uh, well, it's an inappropriate thing to do. It's an unsuitable time. A second time, Bahia said to the Blessed One, it is difficult to know for certain, Reverend Sir, how long the Blessed One will live or how long I will live. Teach me Dhamma, O Blessed One, teach me Dhamma so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. This guy's determined. I mean, he's run all the way from like Bombay to central India. He's not going to wait another moment. It is an unsuitable time, Bahia. We have entered among the houses for alms food. A third time, Bahia said to the Blessed One, it is difficult to know for certain, Reverend Sir, how long the Blessed One will live or how long I will live. Teach me Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me Dhamma so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. Now, sometimes, if you ask the Buddha very nicely three times, even if he turns you down the first two times, he might grant your request. Herein, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In seeing, there will merely be seeing. In hearing, merely hearing. In sensing, merely sensing. In cognizing, merely cognizing. In this way, you should train yourself, Bahia. When Bahia, for you in seeing, there is only seeing, in hearing, only hearing, in sensing, only sensing, in cognizing, only cognizing, then, Bahia, you will not be with that. When you are not with that, you will not be in that. When, Bahia, you are not in that, then, Bahia, you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of dukkha. I've also seen it translated, when you can do in seeing, there's only seeing, etc. Then you will not be in that, you will not be in this, and you will not be in between. Just this is the end of dukkha. Does that sound like maybe not getting caught up in concepts? Yeah, maybe. Now, through this brief Dhamma teaching of the Blessed One, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth was immediately freed from the asavas without grasping, the taints, influxes, intoxicants, the things that keep us pinned to the wheel of samsara. Then the Blessed One, having instructed Bahia with this brief instruction, went away. Now, I looked around the room when I read this out, and I didn't see anybody here getting fully awakened. You know, the Buddha probably had a better delivery. 
<laughs> or maybe Bahia had a different background. How did the Buddha know to give this brief instruction to this guy so that he woke up completely? You know, this is pretty amazing. Okay, what's his name? Bahia of the bark cloth. The guy is dressed like a tree, right? He's wearing bark clothing. He looks like a tree. Now, if you're walking down the street and you see some guy wearing an orange bed sheet and has a shaved head, what do you think? Buddhist monk, right? Okay. You see some guy walking down the street dressed in bark cloth clothing in ancient Savati. You're going to know right away. Follower of the Brihadaranyakara Upanishad. Okay, the Brihadaranyakara Upanishad, one of the Upanishads, one of the ones that was very prominent at the time, probably the one the questioner had studied when he was asking in the previous sutta, that Upanishad makes a big deal about trees. And so Bahia is so dedicated to that, he's dressed like a tree. And furthermore, in the Brihadaranyakara Upanishad, it says something like, in seeing, there is the unseen seer. In hearing, there's the unheard hearer. In sensing, the unsensed sensor. In cognizing, the uncognized cognizer. This is your Atman, your soul, yourself. And the Buddha goes, no, man. In seeing, it's just seeing. In hearing, it's just hearing. He knew the practice by he had been doing by the way he was dressed. And as the Buddha so often did, he takes something that his questioner already knows and he just tweaks it, shifts it 90 degrees, and it was enough so that Bahia woke up. This is an incredibly powerful practice, even if you're not a follower of the Brihadaranyakara Upanishad. I recommend it again when doing walking meditation. I'm sure you've all done lots of walking outside of time ever since I recommended that two days ago. So now I've got another one for you. Go for a walk. And can you rest in seeing, just seeing? All you see is seeing. You don't see tree and other yogi and, or anything else. There's just seeing. And there's a sound and you're just hearing, not hearing car or truck or airplane or bell or footsteps. In sensing, in smelling, it's just smelling. And if a thought comes by, it's just thinking, just cognizing. Right? Can you actually step back far enough to rest in that? It's a good thing to do while walking. It's a very difficult thing to do sitting there with your eyes closed. Real hard to work on the seeing part. Okay? But it's another practice to undertake. It's a very powerful practice. If you've played with walking outside of time, you've sort of got a nice preliminary for working with that. All right? Not long after the Blessed One's departure, a cow with a young calf attacked by he of the bark cloth and killed him. 
This was a hazard at the time of the Buddha, sort of like drunk drivers today. What happened to old Joe? Oh, he was coming home from Sangha one night and a drunk driver T-boned him, killed him, right? Well, that didn't happen in the time of the Buddha, but they, were, they, they didn't fence in their cows, you know? Go for a walk, some cows over here, some cows over here, calf over here, must belong to that cow. You walk between it, nope, belong to that cow, done. Not only happened to Bahia, there was a former king of Taxila who resigned his kingship to go study with the Buddha. He was killed by a cow with a calf. There was Supa Buddha the leper who heard a discourse by the Buddha, attained stream entry. He was killed by a cow with calf. There was one of the generals in King Pasanati's army who was killed by a cow with a calf. It was, it was a hazard at that time. Now the commentaries, bless their little hearts, tell us it's the same cow. <laughs> You know, in a previous incarnation, these four guys hired a prostitute, had their way with her, and then killed her, and now she's come back and killed all four of them. The fact that these happen in disparate parts of northern India, yeah, you've got to watch out for the commentaries. But it clearly was a hazard at that time, and Bahia didn't get to enjoy his awakening for very long. When the Blessed One, having walked for alms, food, and savati, was returning from alms round with a number of bhikkhus, on departing from the town, he saw that Bahia of the bark cloth had died. So at least Bahia managed to get out of town and out into the country before he died. Seeing this, the Blessed One said to those bhikkhus, Bhikkhus, take Bahia's body, put it on a litter, carry it away and burn it, and make a stupa for it. Your companion in the holy life has died. Yes, Venerable Sir. And they did so. And afterwards, they went to the Blessed One, saluted, sat down to one side. Bahia's body has been burned, Reverend Sir, and a stupa has been made for it. What is his destiny? What is his future birth? Bhikkhus, Bahia of the bark cloth was a wise man. He practiced according to the Dhamma and did not trouble me by disputing about Dhamma. Bhikkhus, Bahia of the bark cloth has attained final Nibbana. He woke up completely. He doesn't have a destiny or a future birth. And since this is from the Udana, the exclamations, each sutta finishes with, and then on realizing its significance, the Blessed One uttered on that occasion this inspired utterance, this Udana. Where neither water nor yet earth nor fire nor air gain a foothold, there gleam no stars, no sun sheds light, there shines no moon. Yet there no darkness reigns. When a sage, a Brahmin, has come to know this for himself, through his own wisdom, then that one is freed from form and formless, freed from pleasure and from dukkha, pain. This is to give us an idea about this no ordinary concepts where the four elements, everybody familiar with the elements, earth, water, wind, fire, right? Where they don't gain a foothold, where you're not conceiving of things in terms of solids, liquids, gases, and energy. 
Where there gleam no stars, no sun sheds light, there shines no moon, yet no darkness reigns. You're not caught up in light and dark. When one has come to know this for oneself, through their own wisdom, then that one is freed from form and formless. We could say freed from appearances and names. Freed from pleasure, freed from pain. Right? So this is really pointing to not getting lost in dualities. A lot of dualities out there, high and low, good and bad, good and evil, useful and not useful. You want to get free, you got to not get lost in the dualities. You want some peace, you're not going to find peace out there. Out there is full of dualities. And they're getting, well, <laughs> further and further apart as time goes on. It's a crazy time that we live in. You know, the Chinese have that curse, may you live in interesting times. Well, it's gotten really interesting lately. To cope with what's out there, to contribute to dealing with what's out there in a skillful way, it's going to require some peace of mind on your part. You can't go out there and act crazy. That's not going to be helpful. You're going to need to find some peace. Not holding to fixed views, that's part of it. Not getting lost in dualities. Not getting lost in your own concepts. Not dividing the world up into those evil people over there and these good people over here. They're just people. Maybe you divide them up into confused people and not confused people, but I think we're probably all pretty confused, right? It's about recognizing what's going on as clearly as possible. And then taking a look and what can you do to help, right? It's not about categorizing or name calling or anything else. On that first retreat I did with Ayakema, somebody asked her about, you know, engaged Buddhism. And she said, if you know something you can do that's helpful, by all means do it. Otherwise, keep working on yourself. Keep working on yourself and you might figure out things that you can do that are helpful. All of this is dependently originated. The deepest teachings on dependent origination point out to the fact that everything arises dependent on other things. Nothing stands alone. And the number of things that everything arises dependent on is huge, right? All you can do is contribute to the arising of things that are useful, beneficial, helpful, to the best of your ability.
and try not to get lost in the concepts about what's going on.